Welcome to the Pain Points of Wealth, the podcast that addresses the pain points that come with creating, growing, and sustaining your wealth, giving you a multi-generational perspective from three pains in a pod, Bob Payne, the boomer, Chris Payne, the millennial, and Ryan Payne, the generation somewhere in between. It's the third episode here of Pain Points of Wealth. We got an action-packed show for you today. We actually have our first guest, Adam Johnson. He's the founder of Bullseye Brief. It's a weekly investment letter which explores American ingenuity, some really cool stuff. It's actually a newsletter that Bob, myself, and Chris follow on a weekly basis. So I think it's going to be some great, great ideas and some content for you. But as always, gentlemen, the news in plain sight, you've seen the headlines this week. We give you the real story. And Bob, you and I were talking last week and you said something I thought was pretty cool. It was like after 45 years in the markets, I figured you'd say something cool eventually. (laughs) (laughs) And you said to me, you know, there's nothing new on Wall Street. And I thought that was a really interesting thing because you always have this feeling like we're in unprecedented times. And I went back and I researched where that quote was from because you always say stuff that sounds really smart. And then we find out that someone already said it. So (laughs) I found out the quote came from a very famous stock speculator from the 1920s. His name was Jesse Livermore. And he famously once said in the 20s, granted, this is you know literally 100 years ago, there's nothing new in Wall Street. There can't be because speculation is as old as the hills. Whatever happens in the stock market today has happened before and will happen again. And it seems like we're parting right now like it's 1999. I mean, does this feel like 1999 to you, Bob, with the tech bubble and tech stocks going through the roof? Well, first of all, Rye, that book, you know, I quote it a lot because it's really small and short and easy to read over and over again. Only thing missing were pictures. Yeah, that's the problem. So the problem I had with the Wall Street Journal when I first opened one up in 1975, I couldn't find a sports page. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about the market is, you know, first of all, we had a bear market in this year in 2020 that ended on March 23rd. And we've been in a bull market since then. Now, this bull market feels a lot like what we went through in 99 because it was dominated by a handful of tech stocks that were selling at incredible multiples. Or in other words, their valuations were higher than the rest of the market. And it's almost like we talk to someone today. It's like, well, you know, I want to invest and diversify, but I own Amazon. It sounds like back in 99, it was, well, you know, I don't really need to diversify because I own Cisco. And Chris, I always had this great line. I would always ask people, say, well, you know, I miss Cisco. What's the next one? What do you mean? What's the next one? You know, you obviously are really good at picking stocks and you picked a great winner. And they say, yeah, yeah. Did I tell you I own Cisco? I said, yeah, we got that. You know, so now you hear I own Amazon. So it's like there's one stock that's going to cover everything, but price does matter, right? I mean, Cisco, I think I recall, Chris, you bought Cisco when you first started in the industry as an intern, didn't you? I did. And I think it was like 130 times earnings. How'd that work out for you? Well, I ended up selling it, I think, either at a loss or for about what I paid for it. And since then, you've been a successful investor, which is great. I would say that's probably accurate, but it's just because I learned from the best. I learned from my brother, who's a fantastic financial advisor and has given me nothing but sage advice since. (laughs) Well, good to have a brother. But I'll tell you what, I mean, when you look at the uh, earnings, right? I mean, this is a thing that it's kind of eye-popping, right? You go back to 99 and tech stocks dominated the index. 
And when I'm talking about the index, I'm talking about the S&P 500. And now it's even more dominant. I mean, it does give you pause. Well, it's like the numbers are almost too striking, right? At the peak of the dot-com bubble, you had, your point, about 35% of the S&P 500 was tech. It's actually 37% today. It's even higher. The S&P now trades at 26 times this year's Ford earnings, which was exactly what it traded for back in September of 2000. And to your point, the NASDAQ was traded at 35 times Ford earnings back during the internet bubble. It trades there today. So it's almost like history doesn't repeat, Bob. You like to say this. It kind of rhymes. And you know, you're starting to see the street justify like somehow, how is Apple worth another trillion dollars this year? I get it. You know, it's a good company. But you know, we talked about this on the show before. Their business model hasn't changed dynamically here. So it just gets to a point where is it like greater fool's theory where everyone just thinks I'm gonna buy and some fool's gonna buy it for me at a higher price? Well, that's how it works with Tesla, doesn't it, Chris? Yeah, that's a good point, Dad. As a matter of fact, I actually just got off the phone with a very good client of mine who bought some Tesla over the last year, and I've been encouraging him to take a little bit of profit, and he's hesitant about taking profits. And by the way, he's up like 800% on a stock that has a forward PE. Are you ready for this? 250 times forward earnings. So you've got something that's like major profits, and they're hesitating with the chance that it might go up even more. You know what it is? It's like that old Dr. John song. I was in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. It's like you got the right stock, you got the wrong price. You know, These are all good companies, but they're trading right now at astronomical values. And the crazy thing is, and Bob, you can probably attest to this, they can keep going up here. There's no doubt they can keep going up. But the scary thing is when the tech bubble bursts, it's not going to be pretty if this history is any guide. And if you go back to 99 to 2000, over a 15-month period, the NASDAQ went up another 100%. And you lost that 100% in a matter of nine months. So when the tide goes the other way, Bob, I have to think it's not pretty. I don't know what you remember about 99, 2000, but I remember it was not pretty. Well, first of all, one thing I do remember about 99 is that I was a lot younger. And you guys know I was born with gray hair. I'm going prematurely blonde. Or I think it was the other way around. Maybe I had blonde hair back then. But what you probably don't remember is that in something like 96 or 97, the Federal Reserve Chairman, Alan Greenspan, came out, said the market's exhibiting irrational exuberance. And the NASDAQ doubled from there. So in 99, we thought the market was definitely exhibiting irrational exuberance because, you know, one of the smartest, most supposedly one of the most informed people in the federal government told us it was irrationally exuberant 100% ago. And then, like you said, right, over the next 15 months, it doubled again. So you got to be careful. You can't time the market based on valuation, but you certainly doesn't hurt to spread some of the chips around. And last I checked, Chris, you never go broke taking a profit. Yeah, Dad, that's really interesting and reminds me of an article that I read last week. Basically, what it talked about was there was a study, I don't know if you remember this, back in 2009 that were done by these two professors from Berkeley, Odin and Barber. And what they had done a study on is investor behavior back in the 1990s. And I don't know if you remember that study at all or remember some of the things that came out of it. But basically, what they said was that investor behavior... The way our parents invested hasn't really changed much for us as millennials. We're still buying all the stuff that's really up and not really buying value. Yeah. So what happened, Chris, these are the first day traders, people that quit their day job. They put lawyers and doctors and corporate executives on the front page of the Time Magazine cover. Look at these geniuses. They quit their day job to day trade. Now, they lost all their money. So I don't know what happened to those people, but obviously they had children because those children are doing the same thing. They're now day trading on Robinhood. And they're chasing stocks. They're doing what's called a momentum trade. They're not doing any due diligence. We're not getting big requests for research reports. What they're doing is, oh, it's up. It must be good. Let's buy more. 
the greater fool theory. Like I'm going to buy this because somebody crazier than me is going to buy it from me. So it's like, there's no due diligence going on here. So I think the moral of the story here, guys, just to wrap up is investors are starting to believe the tech hype again. And I think it was Public Enemy that once said back in the 90s, don't believe the hype. You you have 56% of response to a recent survey saying they believe tech stocks are not in a bubble. We just talked about Tesla, which is up 525% over the last 12 months. You just had a Bank of America analyst upgrade it. So, you know, there's an old quote, and I think it's a good place to end the segment here is, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. All right, so let's welcome our very first guest to the show, Mr. Adam Johnson. He's the founder of Bullseye Brief, a weekly newsletter Bob, Chris, and I follow. Adam has anchored several business programs at Bloomberg Television. He's managed global risk assets for ING firm in Cells and Louis Dreyfus, trading oil futures, listed equities and equity options. And like Bob and I, he began his career at Merrill Lynch with a degree in economics at Princeton. Adam, man, it's great to have you on the show. You know, I'm a huge fan of your newsletter. And it's just like an absolute pleasure to have you here. You've done our radio show. Any media thing that we've experimented with, you've always been there. Well, you guys do a great job. And you know, I love being part of it. Your bullseye subscribers. I always say we're in this together. That's how I feel. You know, I end every newsletter and every email that goes out. And I really mean it. So we're figuring it out together. Yeah, and one of the things that I really liked that you said back in the dark days of the bear market that we had this year in 2020, and when all the other pundits on TV were telling us how horrible things were going to get, you pointed to the fact that we're in a recession and most bear markets end in a recession, so it's time to buy. And you yeah. said, I'm going with both feet. I didn't hear that from anybody. I thought that was a great insight. And of course, we made a lot of money listening to you. Oh, thanks, Bob. But how do you feel about the markets now? I mean, we've had a big run. We've had a big 50% move since then. What's your outlook now? Well, yes, we've had a 50% move, but we should never have had a 50% sell-off. So by my way of looking at it, we're roughly where we should have been if COVID had never happened. Now, the fact that the NASDAQ is actually up 25%, okay, you could say, well, that maybe is a little farther than it should have been. Fair enough. But when I look at the S&P 500, I'm very comfortable with where we are and where we're going. Well, let me play devil's advocate here a little bit because it's not the S&P 500 anymore, Adam. It's the S&P 5, True. right? I mean, you're basically buying a tech stock or a tech index when you buy the S&P. Does that concern you in terms of you know where you're diversifying your money? Because I feel like if you're just blindly buying the S&P here, you're really getting five stock exposure and not getting a lot of the cheaper names that are out there. You know, I hear you, Ryan, and that's a fair point, but I'm up 30% this year. And I say that humbly because in March, trust me, I was down about that much. But right now I'm up 30% and I don't own any of the fangs. You know, my whole thing is American ingenuity, right? People and companies changing the world. So yes, I am long some tech, but not fang tech. I am long biotech. I'm long med tech. I'm long energy. So it's possible to be up double digits and not own Amazon or Apple or Facebook or Google. We don't get an edge there anywhere. You know, yes, Wonderful stocks. And I agree, the S&P 500 has become very concentrated, but focus on picking growth-oriented stocks and you're going to do just fine. And that's what I'm trying to do for my Bullseye subscribers. And again, I was down significantly in March, but we're now up significantly. I feel good about that. You mentioned energy. What do you think about price of oil? Where's it headed? I think it's headed higher. And I tell you what, Again, speaking as a former oil... I like that answer, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But it's reality. Oil demand didn't disappear. There was a reset. And the fact is, it takes a very long time to restart oil production once you take it offline. So we could actually find ourselves in a deficit by September. 
yeah, there's a lot of oil that can be brought profitably to the surface in the 30 to $35 range. But eventually that runs out and you've got to spend more money to find other cheaper oil. So, you know, I think equilibrium where people make money and where they can afford to invest in new wells, I think that's probably somewhere in the 50s, which is why I think we're going higher. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. I think it's one that gets missed because, you know, everyone's talking about tech right now. To your point, if you can diversify out of tech, you can make some money here. But I mean, when I start looking at valuation, you start looking at the yields you get. And I know one of your bigger holdings is energy transfer, which we own a pipeline index in our portfolio for our clients because the cash flow is great. Oh, yeah. And from an outlook perspective right now, you look at supply and demand and your point, I mean, I even look bigger picture than that, Adam. I mean, you start thinking about all these middle classes overseas that are going to be created over the next decade, right? The energy dependence for hundreds of millions of people is going to be tremendous. Well, that's why I'm long a company called Chenier. LNG is the ticker appropriately. This company was the first company to ever get an export license. So they buy natural gas from producers here in the US. They chill it down where they can shrink it by about a thousand times. You know, when you super cool it, you put it on a tanker and you export it to Asia. They already have buyers in Asia going out 20 years. So they have back to back, as the commodity traders like to say, they backed to backed both sides of the trade. They have a 20-year supply agreements. They have 20-year distribution agreements, and they take out a margin. So they're not drilling for oil. All they're doing is serving as an intermediary. So yeah, Chenier Energy, ticker LNG, that is absolutely a way to play that. You mentioned energy transfer, ticker ET, that yields 14, 15%, long that one. Amazingly, when it paid the dividend, the next day it didn't trade down. It held the dividend. It's trading too cheap. And this company owns about one third of the pipelines in the United States. Again, not drilling for oil, just moving oil from place to place. And that doesn't change. There's been a setback, but there is still oil demand and we will eventually recalibrate. So I think you got to have some energy in the portfolio. Adam, I'll tell you, I got some good news for you because the sentiment against anything energy related is so negative right now. Yeah. I've been doing this for 45 years. I've got clients every day calling me up saying, why don't we just get rid of the pipelines? They don't do it. Let's get some more of anything else. So the sentiment has never been more negative in my career. Which is good because you and I are both contrarians, right? If we see a tremendous amount of negativity, like right now, there are two times as many bears as there are bulls. That tells me that there's money on the sidelines. And when that money comes in, it pushes our stocks higher. It's got nowhere else to go. Yeah. Exactly. Well, one thing I do like though, Adam, is one thing you don't like is gold. And I agree with you, you know, gold, it doesn't pay a dividend. It's a lousy long-term investment. Right. Yes, it's up this year. And the one thing you always put in your newsletter is, I have one question for the gold bugs. When do you sell? <laughs> you know, I'm a growth guy. American ingenuity is my thing. And there's nothing ingenious about gold. So God bless all the people who've been long gold and have made money. They probably had to wait, you know, several years, but God bless them. I want everyone to do well. It's just that I'm not going to do well being long gold because I will never buy gold. <laughs> uh, you heard it first on <laughs> the pain points of wealth. Adam will never buy gold. will never buy gold. Although silver is interesting. <laughs> you know why? Because actually silver has more industrial use to it than gold. But again, it's not my thing. I will say for any of your listeners who think that I'm crazy and want to own miners, the one they should probably buy is Silver Wheaton. Silver Wheaton, I believe the ticker is SIL, is basically a processing slash hedge fund company. They have 89 employees and several billion dollars in revenues. All they do is buy surplus silver that comes out of mines that are mining for gold and copper. And then they process that silver 
and turn around and sell it. They're like the LNG that I just mentioned, Chenier Energy. They're like the LNG of the silver business. And again, 89 employees with billions in revenue. It's a levered bet on silver, but I'm not doing it. Well, also you had Warren Buffett buying a miner recently as well with Berkshire Hathaway. So I think just any commodity play where you have a business around the commodity play makes a lot more sense than buying the physical commodity. Because by the way, I love what you just said, because what you're getting at is earnings leverage, right? Like a coal mine, you already have all the machines. So the more you can run the machines, the more you're going to make. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And dividends are a beautiful thing. And I think that gets lost sometimes on these gold bugs because you get or no dividend. And again, you have basically an investment that's done marginally as well as inflation over the long term. It's lousy. So Adam, just to wrap up here, what's your target, man? We got to ask you for the S&P 500, where do you see it from here to the end of the year? I know you're always a man who makes bold statements. You never flinch away from giving a target. You know, What do you see from here until December with the S&P 500 and the general market. So I'm going to give you my base case, and I think it's too low. My base case on the S&P 500 is 3,600. That's only, I love it. you know, five, six, seven percent from here, depending upon where you want to market on a given day. When I said that a month ago, people thought I was crazy. And then, you know, the market ran 8%. Here's how I get to 3,600. Real rates right now are below zero. In other words, inflation is higher than the 10-year yield, which by definition means that your borrowing rate is less than zero. In a world where you are being paid to deploy capital, go out, borrow money, and then invest it, a 20 multiple on the S&P 500 is probably low. But we'll say base case, 20 multiple. At some point in the next several quarters, we are going to have four quarters where the S&P 500 gets back to where it would have been and generates $180 in earnings. A 20 multiple on 180 gets you to the S&P of 3,600. Again, that's my base case. And at this point, I think it's probably too low. I think we're going higher than that, Ryan. I love the bullishness. Adam, thank you very much for being on our show. If our listeners want to find out you know, how to learn more about you, get hooked up with your weekly newsletter, which Bob and I, Chris, love it. We read it. What's the best way to find that information out? Oh, thanks, Ryan. Bullseyebrief.com. I've got a 45-day trial. I've got a sample issue on the site. You can see all my returns. I answer every email. So people can also send me an email, aj at bullseyebrief.com. I love what I do. I love talking about this stuff. And I'm just sorry we can't keep going, guys. <laughs> we'll do it again, man. Yes, so, please. Thank you for coming on the show. It was great having you, and we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Chris. All right, it's the tipping point. Each week, we pinpoint the pain point. And of course, that's P-A-Y-N-A, having the biggest impact on your wealth right now. And you know, one thing, guys, that we've seen over and over again with like the thousands of portfolio proposals we do on an annual basis is most of you just don't have a plan with your money. So Bob, I thought we could talk a little bit today about the rules of investing. And back in your days at Merrill Lynch, back in the heyday, there was an analyst there, a strategist for the firm, Bob Farrell, who was like the most famous analyst of all time, who taught you a couple great lessons. So I thought we could talk about that today. And you know, you could tell us a little more about the good old days of Merrill Lynch. Well, I got to tell you, back in the day, as you guys like to say, when I was a young financial advisor, I guess we were called stockbrokers back then in the late 70s, is when I used to listen to Bob Farrell every morning because the guy was a legend. I mean, an absolute legend at the firm. And fortunately, my office in Philadelphia, we had a squawk box, but in the institutional office, which was down the hallway, they had a two-way squawk box. So you could actually get to ask Bob questions. So Bob, can you explain what a squawk box is? Well, a squawk box is just a one-way, two-way radio, right? It's like it's, you know, somebody gets on and does a broadcast. So you just had speakers around the boardroom and all the offices, and it would listen to the analysts. They'd give you their opinions for the day. But every 
everybody always wanted to hear what Bob had to say. And the one thing about Bob is he would tell you exactly what you thought, exactly what the market was going to happen. And then he would go, but on the other hand, if you went back and then he would give you the exact opposite view, you know, the contrarian view. So you never really knew when you were finished listening to Bob exactly what he was thinking. So one day, one of the advisors in my office hit the squawk box button and asked Bob a question. He said, hey, Bob, cut the crap. Which way is the arrow pointing? <laughs> <laughs> so the next day when I went back into the institutional office to hear Bob's comments, there was now only one way commentary. You were no longer able to ask questions. So this one institutional stockbroker in Philadelphia ruined it for all the Merrill Lynchers. They could never ask Bob Farrell a question again. <laughs> it's always a guy from Philly. Well, so even though you couldn't ask questions, there's these famous rules of investing that you basically gave to Chris and I back early in our career that you can kind of live by. And they're kind of immortalized on Wall Street. These are great ways when you're building your portfolio or your investment discipline that we can use today. So I thought we could talk about a couple of those. And one of his most famous was markets tend to return to the mean over time. I guarantee you guys, you meet anyone from Merrill Lynch in the 70s that worked there in the 80s or the 90s, even 2000. If you ask, you know, what was a famous quote from Bob Farrell? Markets return to the mean. Now, sounds simple. What does it mean? I think the perfect example right now have to be tech stocks, right? I mean, they just keep going up and going up and it feels like you know, they'll never go down again. But as we know, Chris, you know, trees don't grow to the sky. That's right. And as a matter of fact, Ry, I actually talked to a participant in one of the 401ks I managed today, and he wanted me to take all the money out of his balanced diversified portfolio and just add it into the Vanguard large cap growth fund. And I said, that's not a really diversified, well-balanced portfolio. He goes, yeah, but it's up 31%. I said, year over year. I said, yeah, but it's not going to stay that way forever. I said, you know how much markets return over time? He said, I don't know. I said, 10%. He goes, yeah, but 31%. And I said, yeah, but 10% over time. And he kept saying 31%, 31%. So I can understand how that would be hard to ignore that there's a possibility that at some point that portfolio might revert to the mean. Yeah. And it's just amazing, Chris, like that client you just mentioned, they always want to do the same thing. It's like the public buys the most at the top when things are hot and the least at the bottom, which is another one of Bob Farrell's rules of investing. Amazing. It hasn't changed over time. Well, I feel like, right, it's like anything else you do in life, especially like getting in shape, for example. The last thing in the world you want to do is get up and put in the hard work. It's always so much easier to get up and eat that chocolate cake or that donut because it feels so good in the moment. The last thing you want to think about is the long-term effects it's going to have on your financial plan on your portfolio, just because you get that like instant rush of buying into what everybody else is doing. And you're all part of the hype. Yeah, that's the thing, Christian, when you look at large growth, and of course, you know, you mentioned the large growth portfolio we have in ours accounts over the last 10 years, it's returned 17% a year on average. I mean, it's phenomenal. But if you went back the previous 10 years, the return was negative. And I was talking to a client the other day and I pointed that out to him. He said, that's impossible. And I said, the Morningstar report, he went, oh my goodness, how could that happen? I said, markets revert to the mean and people always love what's up at the top and they hate to buy what's down. So 10 years ago, I guarantee you that same client wouldn't put a dime in a large cap growth unless you told them to. Well, it just goes to show you how short memories are. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember, but in 2008 was actually a negative year. You know how many people remember that? Oh, I do. I have a bunch of gray hair to prove it. Unfortunately, I do. <laughs> Fortunately, I do, Chris. Well, the other thing too is, and I think this is also an argument for, we know tech is probably overvalued here, but the overall market's doing really, really well. And another one of Bob Farrell's rules 
is markets are strongest when they are broad and weakest when they're narrow to a handful of blue chip names. Well, if you start looking at the overall market, other things are moving now too. You know, We've talked about this in the past and we'll talk about it more in the future, but you have the dollar weakening. You have international markets going up. Commodities seem like they go up every single day. I think even though parts of the market may be at excess, there's still a lot of great value in the market. And I think that's really important when you're building your financial plan today or your portfolio. Portfolio construction, you got to start thinking about the next 10 years, not the past 10 years. Because your point, Bob, you know, had you started investing in 2010, you never would have put a dime into growth because it was doing terrible, but that was the exact perfect time to do it. So when you're building your portfolio now, you got to start thinking about what's going to do well with the dollar weakening. With all this global stimulus going on, it's not going to be a repeat of the Amazons, Facebooks, and the Googles of the world. There's going to be other names that are going to rise to the top. And that's exactly why we picked this topic as this week's tipping point, because every single financial plan we've been preparing for the last three years, every single one of them, not a few, every single one of them has been overweight, large company growth stocks where it's been the best return, but it's going to feel the biggest pain you know, over the next 10 to 20 to 30 years if Bob Farrell is even halfway right. All right, it's time for the hidden facts of finance, random financial facts that may surprise you or even shock you. All right, guys, I have some good ones today. The first one is stock market investing is hip again. Roughly 6 million online trading accounts have opened in the last six months. At least 3 million were on this Robinhood platform. A whole new generation of investors has finally emerged. I don't know, Rob, from what I read that the people at Robinhood aren't really investors. They're more like traders and they're chasing the momentum stock. So it sounds more like gambling and speculation than it does well, investing. Chris told me if the stock market was the greatest casino in the world and that we should start offering drinks with our service. I don't know what he meant by that. Well, I think if these uh, tech stocks ever correct, these people will have no problem drinking. That's going to probably happen. Well, crazy enough, you know, even though you have all these traders on these platforms trading all the tech stocks, retail transactions, Chris, make up only a quarter or less of all trading volume. They don't really move the markets per se. You know, Ron, I'm not really surprised by that because it really is the proverbial smart money. And I'm doing air quotes the hedge funds and the pension funds of the world seems to me like they're always trying to play catch up rather than responding to opportunities in the market. Hey, like we do. You know, that's why you're the smart retail investor, I guess. You could label us that. This is an interesting stat. US companies have $700 billion in assets in China, generating $500 billion in domestic sales every single year. Apple sources most of its products in China and gets 15% of its sales there. In US dollars, the Chinese stock market has more than doubled the return of the U.S. stock market so far this year, Bob? Well, Rob, I've gotten a lot of calls from clients saying, number one, we should encourage U.S. companies to stop doing business in China. And the one thing they don't want is any money invested in the Chinese stock market. Fortunately, we're in the Chinese stock market and it has more than doubled in the last year. So they've made money doing that. And how can you ask any company to ignore 1.4 billion potential clients? Well, Dad, you always say, do you want to be right or do you want to be rich? <laughs> and you can't not invest in Apple, even though that they're basically getting a lot of their parts from China. So it's almost impossible to take them out of your portfolio, for the record. Another interesting stat here, guys. February 19th to the March 23rd close was the fastest bear market in history, plunging by 33.9% in 22 days. However, in 1987, the S&P 500 tumbled 20% in one day Black Monday is still the largest single day decline on record. Bob, which was worse? The plunge that we had back in March or Black Monday? Well, all plunges are horrible. They're equally bad. 
in terms of how you felt. But with hindsight, you know, it's 2020. They were just another correction in an ongoing bull market, one I've been in all my life, one I've been in, the country's been in since 1776. So just remember, all corrections, all dips in history are temporary and the ups are inevitable. We hit new highs this week. You know, I have a nostalgic picture of that day when dad was in Hawaii. He was standing on the side of a volcano, literally in a phone booth, calling the office that day. That must have been a hard day, Bob. Yeah, I remember calling the office. They said, IBM's about to be shut down. They're going to shut the market down. Not a heck of a lot you can do when you're on a volcano in Hawaii, but it was a good place to enjoy my misery. <laughs> Luckily, it didn't erupt. All right, how about this? Only 15% of pet owners said the current economic conditions have made them spend less on their furry friends, while 21% reported spending more. You know, I'm not really surprised by this fact because it seems like people care more about their pets than they do their actual human friends. And like the famous Gordon Gecko said in Wall Street, if you want a friend, get a well, dog. I like his other one. Wasps. Love pets, hate people. <laughs> <laughs> Next one here. Although the new crop of meatless burgers are growing quickly, the numbers are still dwarfed by rising demand for meat and milk from the world's growing middle class. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but if you have to get vegetables that taste like meat in order to get you to eat vegetables, maybe vegetables don't taste all that good. (laughs) I've never had one. Chris, have you ever eaten one of these? Yeah, I can attest to this. I live with a vegetarian and we pretty much eat vegetables and I had one of these. And I can tell you when I'm craving a hamburger, it's not one of these. So you're not reaching for that meatless burger just yet. Check this one out, guys. Global e-commerce still has a tremendous room to grow per estimates. Global e-commerce sales, even with the new reality of COVID, is still only between 22 and 25% of all sales. Well, you know what, Rye? I'll tell you, I love to buy things online, but it's not the end-all be-all. And Luisa, my fiance and I, we recently decided during COVID that we're going to redecorate our bedroom. We got all the furniture yesterday and everything is just way too small for our space. So there is a lot of value still, I think, in buying things at brick and mortar stores. Sounds like you bought it from China, Chris. (laughs) All right. And lastly here, guys, when the market has risen from July 31st to October 31st, the incumbent party has tended to win the presidency. And when the market has slumped, the challenging party has been victorious. Since World War II, this trend has a 72% win rate. Well, here's what I know, Rai. I said over the last hundred years, the stock market has risen. There have been incumbent parties in and new parties in, and the stock market really doesn't care. But I think this tells us is that there's plenty of indicators that tells that the market's going to go higher no matter who's sitting in the White House after November. So these things are fun to listen to. They don't really have a lot of Bob, I think I can sum that up as be bullish or you're foolish. I think it's be bullish. Don't be politically foolish when it comes to Well said. Well, great show today, gentlemen. And as always, stay loose and keep your mind open. Thanks for listening to The Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully, you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Brian, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management, at BeBullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Payne Capital Management. Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed.